Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, appreciate everybody who's here and who's visiting or just with us in, uh, in normal routine. Um, it's extremely encouraging to get to be together. Um, I've heard many times older men reflect on the fact that assembling with the saints is the closest we get to heaven on this side of eternity. Um, I think like we've sung in the songs, we're going to be singing in heaven uh, with God's people victoriously. And so to sing songs here together is, is just a great foretaste of that. Uh, we're going to be finishing the book of Numbers uh, this morning. Um, chapter 33 through 36, that's obviously uh, four, three, four, five, six. So it's four chapters. So there's going to be a good bit of summarizing in the sermon. And the text is a lot of details, a lot of names of places, a lot of names of places where they're going to go. Um, and so I'll be doing my best to, to give the idea of a lot of these texts, but we won't be reading a lot of these things in detail. And just to give maybe a higher picture view of the book of Numbers again really quick. So the book of Numbers is maybe a bigger book than you would anticipate. Um, for the longest time, it seemed like the book of Numbers kept going when I feel like it was about to end. Um, they reached the end of their 40 years, the end of their 40 years. In terms of time frame, uh, let me show you this really quick. Chapter 33, verse 38, uh, mentions that Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year. How long were they in the wilderness? 40 years. That uh, event that that's alluding to in uh, Mount Hor where Aaron went and died, that's chapter 20, uh, chapter 20, and then chapter 21, they move a bit further. So by the time you get to chapter 20, you've pretty much reached the final year of Israel's wandering. And the book of Numbers is, is a little more um, interesting than that. So the book starts at Mount Sinai, and they don't actually leave until chapter 10. And the, the wandering in the wilderness period where they leave Sinai to get to the border of Canaan, that only takes place from chapter 10 through chapter 21. So the majority of the book of Numbers, they're actually not wandering at all. They're stopped at two locations. First nine and a half chapters, Mount Sinai. Chapter 22, all the way through where we are, they're at the plains of Moab, opposite Jericho. The promised land is right ahead of them, and that's where we saw in the scripture reading in verse 48 and 49. They're opposite Jericho. And if you remember in the book of Joshua, Jericho is going to be the first place they're going to conquer when they actually go into the land on the other side. Um, the book of Numbers is just such an incredibly diverse book. I think it might be, in my mind, uh, one of the most diverse books of the entire Bible. It has genealogies, lists, laws of rituals, laws of festival days, laws of sacrifices. It has moral laws. It has narrative events. Um, it has things anticipating the future, things prophetically. There's so much within the book of Numbers, and I hope that as we've studied through this book, um, you're just, you're, your ability to grasp the richness of this particular book has been greatly broadened. Um, I feel like through studying this, the, the tools that I have to value my relationship with God has um, grown greatly. So we're going to be, again, um, 33 through 36. And the first part of this is going to be looking back while also looking ahead. All of this is anticipating the promised land, or rather, the inheritance that God is granting them. But Ephesians chapter 1, something that I think is relevant to this, is in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that the Christians there could understand the glory of his inheritance in the saints, God's inheritance in the saints. 
So there is a very important sense where not only were they going into a place of their inheritance, but it's really where they would be God's inheritance. Israel is a nation of God's inheritance. And this is where their inheritance and God's inheritance ultimately would join together, which would climax in Jesus coming into this land far in the future. So with anticipating the land, um, chapter 33 starts actually with a period of looking back on their journeys through the wilderness. So God records on the board here every place where they had been in the wilderness, every single stop, every single location. And then he looks ahead to where they're going. And that's really where the rest of the book of Numbers is. Again, it's anticipating where they're about to go. So in chapter 33, the first two verses um, just kind of summarize that in verse 1, these are the journeys of the sons of Israel by which they came out of the land of Egypt by their armies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. So again, this isn't just something that Moses, you know, he didn't just have like a personal diary. This is something that God told Moses to do is to record all of this within detail. Verse 3 through 15 is from Egypt to Sinai. And there's some places here that you'll recognize if you're familiar with the book of Exodus. Uh, That really constitutes chapter 15 through chapter 19 of the book of Exodus. So you'll notice in verse 15, they journeyed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. So there they're at the mountain. And then verse 16 through all the way 49 is the rest of their journeying until they finally arrive where they are presently, opposite Jericho in the plains of Moab. So I just want to think for a second, what's the value of God deliberately recording all of this? Like we get it, right? If, if we've been reading our Bibles, let's say in a personal reading, you know, we've seen them do their journey. Why do we need this big reflection? Why does God want them not only to not forget the wilderness wandering, but also to have this pause where they remember it in complete detail? I think one of the lessons from this is it shows God's care, right? God has been with them for their entire journey. And if you just look at a quick verse, verse 22, they journeyed from Rissa and camped in Kehelathah. What's the point of that location? Why did they go there? Why did they stop there? The point is, even if they couldn't understand it in the moment, once they arrive at their final location, we're able to see that each stop, as insignificant or as mundane as it may have seemed in the moment, was a part of a bigger puzzle that God was putting together. That although they may have stopped somewhere and faced some troubles or some weariness, in every stop, ultimately what they see is God was caring for them. God was with them. And every stop was a step along the way to the conclusion. And I think when we get to heaven, there's a a sense where God will do this for us. Well, we, We will be able to see, we've been faithful to the Lord, that every step of our life that God has used each thing, whether we've realized it or not, everything we've endured in our life, every mundane day, every mundane moment, God's care was ultimately at work to bring us to our final destination. So I think it signifies something about the greatness of God's care, even in the intimate and even in the mundane. And it shows how important the beginning of the nation was to God, that he would record these things. So verse 50 through 56. So we read this in the scripture reading, but I want you to note something before we think about this again. Where is God placing Israel's perspective before they go in the land? Is he preparing them for economic success? Is he preparing them for just the wild abundance that they get to enjoy within Canaan? 
Now, God is emphasizing the spiritual priorities, right? The point of Canaan wasn't so that Israel could become rich, which there would be points in their nation's history where they would become rich, but that wasn't the point. It wasn't that they would become a military power, although at times they did become a military power, like the life of David, the time of David. The point of Canaan, the only point of Canaan, was that was where God would dwell with his people. It is where God would fulfill a plan to redeem the world. And if that's not what Canaan was for, as in what the people were using it for, then they were troubled, they were punished, and ultimately driven out of the land by nations like Assyria and Babylon. So in verse 56, when he says, and as I plan to do them, so I will do to you. That happened. I've been reading Ezekiel just in my personal reading. And in Ezekiel, I've noticed again and again and again and again, God says to the people, you have filled the land with innocent blood. The land is now filled with violence, which sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 6, when the flood was sent on the world. But it's a fulfillment of the warnings that God consistently gave. If you do the things that they were doing, if you do not listen to me, ultimately you are going to be eradicated out of the land. With that, verse 55. Were they to leave remnants of Canaan's culture and history in the land? Because in the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua doesn't end with the entire land of Canaan completely subdued. The book of Joshua ends where they've began to conquer it. God has fulfilled his promises, but God deliberately, after Joshua died, God deliberately left lands unconquered within Canaan. He deliberately left much of the territory needing to still be fought for, even after the death of Joshua, right? Were they to be content with what they got? Were they to be satisfied? No, they were to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. This was going to take a long time. It was going to take renewed zeal. It was going to need to take community efforts of people continuing to encourage one another. Not only were they going to have to drive out the inhabitants, which it seems as if they literally never did this, it never actually was fulfilled, but they were to destroy all their figured stones, all their molten images, all their high places, every single remnant of what Canaan was. They were to destroy it completely. Every little tool that was used for idolatrous purposes was to be eradicated and destroyed. Think about Mark chapter 4. Jesus, or rather God here, what does he say it's going to be like if they don't drive them out of the land in verse 55? It's going to be like thorns in their eyes. I don't know if you guys have experienced that this, but um, my dad used to take me hunting for grouse, which are a little like small quail when I was a kid. And um, when I was a teenager, I didn't like a part of that hunting process because it wasn't like hunting deer where you sit in a comfortable stand for a while. Hunting grouse usually meant you take a shot and if you hit it and it flies away or falls, you're going to have to trudge through some really, really, really thick bush to search for that bird, which is a small, a small bird that is colored like everything else around you. And so a lot of times we hiked for hours in bush that's smacking your head, getting in your eyes. And as a teenager, uh, I got really annoyed a lot of times with the nature of these hikes. Um, but I think it's the idea of moving forward, growing is going to be a lot harder. And there will be a point where it will actually become impossible. And the only thing that will be left is diminishing, going backwards, and being destroyed. That's exactly what Jesus meant in Mark chapter 4, 18 through 19. 
I think it's, it's no accident, as I've thought of this and studied it, that when Jesus speaks of a soil that has thorns, that I think it is the same idea. So Mark 4, 18 and 19, Jesus spoke of the seed sown among the thorns. He said, these are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Did God equip Israel to be fruitful and to succeed? In Isaiah chapter 5, there's a poem about Israel being God's vineyard. And in the, in the poem, it's that God has overwhelmingly set up his vineyard to bear fruit and succeed in every possible way. There's nothing that God did not do for his nation to succeed and bear fruit. But really, so often, they didn't. And you remember in Matthew 6 when Jesus talked about like a lily and how not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed like one of those? My opinion is that what Jesus was saying is that Solomon's kingdom and all of its riches and all of its might and all the peace that they had, the potential of what Israel was meant to be as God's people was hardly even marginally attained, even at Solomon's peak glory. Ultimately, the kingdom's glory was not realized until Jesus came, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and established his eternal kingdom. So, back to the parable in Mark chapter 4, 18 and 19. Is it a big deal to not be unfruitful? In John 15, Jesus said he has appointed us to bear fruit, and if we don't, what does he say is going to happen? It's going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. Is it important to bear fruit? Jesus appointed us to bear fruit. We have been redeemed to bear fruit and to grow. But we have to listen, listen to God. And if we don't eradicate every tie to sin, every sin and weight, all filthiness, everything that pulls us away from God and into the world, that pulls us away from his will, that makes it difficult to grow, that makes it impossible to grow, that makes it difficult to be involved with his people in fighting the Lord's battles, we've got to listen to God and eradicate those things. It's not like Israel in the Old Testament where God is going to send an enemy nation to physically oppress us. The consequence of what these things look like in Mark is a hardened and calloused, unconvicted heart. And so we just have to be honest and be willing to examine, are there worries of the world that are against the will of God, that are in my life because of holding ties to the world and to sin. The deceitfulness of riches, greed is connected to idolatry in the New Testament. Is there a way where riches, income, economic success, economic comfort are getting in the way of my relationship to God and obedience to his will? Does the desire for other things choke my relationship with God, the priority God calls me to have on his things and his people? And in chapter 34, God outlines the borders of Canaan very specifically. So I've got this on a map here. Um, that all of this was, in a sense, pre-arranged. You could even say predestined. So not that it was predestined where, you know, over their will it was going to be accomplished necessarily, but that God showed them the outline and he gave them every tool that they needed to get it. And now all they needed was to have the faith to cooperate with God. But you can see this is the land that was outlined here. Um, verse 4 through 5 is the southern border. 
Six through nine is the western border that goes along the Mediterranean Sea. Ten through uh, 12 is, I'm sorry, seven through nine, verse five is just the western border. And then uh, six is the western border. Um, seven through nine is the northern border. Then 10 through 12 is the eastern border. Then 13 through the rest of the chapter is Moses emphasizing that Manasseh, half of it, half Manasseh, Gad, Reuben, they've received their inheritance and then appointing leaders among the people. And just very quickly, uh, with God outlining their inheritance, I think there's a similar idea that our inheritance is also measured and much remains unclaimed if we don't have the zeal or the will or the faith to seek it out. I put this scripture on the board, Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, right? Chapters 1 through 3, Paul outlines everything that God has given them, everything that God has promised, the glory of what he's done to bring them where they are now in Christ. And as a result of all of this, before he gets into more practical applications, he's praying that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So think about it. Should they have been motivated to take all the land of Canaan? Should we be motivated to be filled to the fullness of God? Should they have been motivated to go all the way to the borders that God had promised? Should we be motivated to go all the way to the full measurement of the breadth, length, height, and depth? What gets in the way of those motivations? Why would we not be motivated with all the saints to cooperate in that work? You know, so again, Ephesians 4, after this, he gets into practical applications of our work together, our relationships as a local church, each part doing its share, preserving the unity of the Spirit, personal applications, family applications, all of those things, in a sense, are these measurements of God's love, where if we don't have the concern to pursue it, we'll be left unclaimed, and we'll be crippled and not able to grow, just as Israel was crippled and not able to grow. Chapter 35. Here we have Levitical cities, which would have been very special cities within the territory of Israel. They were to be given 48 special cities for the Levites, six of which were to be cities of refuge. Here I'm going to read um, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll get more into some points from this chapter. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they give to the Levites from the inheritance of their possessions cities to live in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to live in, and their pasture land shall be for their cattle and for their herds and for all their beasts. The pasture lands of the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits around. You shall also measure outside the city on the east two thousand cubits, and on the south side two thousand cubits, and on the west side two thousand cubits, and on the north side two thousand cubits, and the city in the center. This shall become theirs as pasture lands for the, for the cities. The cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be six cities of refuge, which you shall give for the manslayer to flee to. And in addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be 48 cities together with their pasture lands. 
As for the cities which you shall give them from the possession of the sons of Israel, you should take more from the larger and you shall take less from the smaller. So just time out, just like what was said about Israel's inheritance in the nation. Each shall give some of his cities to the Levites in proportion to his possession, which he inherits. So again, on a map here, what I have arrows pointing to are the six cities of refuge. You'll notice that they're pretty evenly distributed from north to south throughout the nation. And the idea is they should be reasonably accessible from anywhere within Israel, no matter where you're living, where, you know, and we'll get more into this, that if somebody was to accidentally kill somebody, they could run to a city of refuge and have a fair investigated trial there. And then they could live there if they were found innocent of murder. Um, And then they would have 48 cities, or 42 cities rather, besides these scattered through the territory of Israel. One more note is on the east side, you'll notice there are three cities of refuge on the east. There would be other Levitical cities as well. And just as a side note, it shows God's approval that the eastern territories were approved of by God. It wasn't just something that Moses approved of, but God didn't really consider to be real territory. Um, Again, that's just a side note, that God approved of what we just read of earlier um, in Numbers chapter 32. So things to consider about the Levites um, before we get into the cities of refuge. What was the role of Levites? Because all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. And at this time, there still would have been a very, very small number of priests, less than 10 priests, because Aaron and his sons in Leviticus had just been designated and ordained as priests. It's 40 years later. So there'd be a few more, but not very many. But there are thousands of Levites. Levites are not priests, although there are priests who must be Levites. Levites, I think, generally would be considered the teachers of God's word. They would have been the people that go throughout Israel and they teach God's law. They judge in problems related to God's law. You go to them for wisdom and counsel. And generally, they're to be the ones who uphold God's holiness within Israel. So with that, can you consider them the value of the fact that they're scattered throughout the entire territory of Israel? That every single tribe of Israel would have multiple Levitical cities? And that if the Levites were increasing in the land, that their presence would become more and more prominent. So I don't have this on the board, but Isaiah 32, uh, 1 through 3, in a context in Isaiah that's looking forward prophetically, it says, Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock, in a parched land, like the song that we sang just a moment earlier. Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded and the ears of those who hear will listen. The idea is when this king reigns in righteousness, princes are also going to rule justly. And those princes, who I think are these people who are connected with the king, they're going to each be like a refuge, just like this king is a refuge. They're going to teach just like the king teaches. And the eyes of those who see, they're going to be opened. And the ears of those who hear are going to listen. So again, there's a sense where we are in the world to be lights within the world. That as the Levites should be the people who teach God's law, who are a refuge and who know God's justice, we as well are called to do the same in our role in the world around us. And the purpose of the COR, which is Cities of Refuge, was to ensure justice in cases of homicide. 
if guilty, a relative of the victim was actually to kill the person who had fled. Um, you'll notice this, verse 19, the blood avenger himself shall, be, shall put the murderer to death. So the way that Israel's justice system worked, it was very fair in that these cities of refuge existed and that there would be a fair trial with multiple witnesses being required. But in verse 19, it wasn't that um, a Levite would execute the death penalty. It wasn't that a king or a ruler in the nation would execute the death penalty. It would be a family member of the deceased. They would actually be the ones to kill the murderer and avenge them. If innocent, though, interestingly, they were to live in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Look at verse 25. The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who is anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer at any time goes beyond the border of his city of refuge to which he may flee, and the blood avenger finds him outside the border of his city of refuge, and the blood avenger kills the manslayer, he will not be guilty of blood, because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. So there's a sense that I think is important within this. Jesus, in a sense, is our city of refuge. In him, we find atonement. In him, we have um, vengeance against sin, atonement for our guilt. And his death, in a great sense, has sealed our freedom, just as the death of the high priest would. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I do want to emphasize how I think all of these things are connected to some statements made in Hebrews chapter 10. Just that Jesus has given us a place of refuge where we're able to be innocent and dwell with him. But also a warning connected to uh, Numbers 35. The warning in Numbers 35 is the land becomes defiled by the blood of the innocent. And no atonement can be made for any innocent blood that's shed in the land. The only way that blood can be atoned for is by the death of the guilty party. And we'll see that in Hebrews chapter 10 as well. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25. Again, thinking about Jesus being our high priest. In him we have refuge. He's given us a place of refuge to flee to. Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, verse 19 uh, through 22 that through Jesus, through his blood, we have a place of refuge, that we have freedom, that we are pardoned, in a sense that we are atoned for and redeemed, but that like Israel, we'll see in chapter 36, was concerned with preserving their inheritance. We, in the same way, through this place of refuge, need to encourage each other to stay in the place where we've been given refuge. Because remember, what would happen if they stepped out of that city when the high priest hasn't died yet? What was the blood avenger allowed to do? What if we step out of the boundaries of our place of refuge in Christ? What if we abandon Jesus? 
What is God authorized to allow to happen? When God says you are in him, atoned for, redeemed, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what about if we abandon him? Verse 26. Jesus' blood must be held in reverence. And so again, innocent blood cannot be atoned for. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that's the law set up in Numbers 35. Verse 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and notice this related to the idea of blood and that that blood must be avenged and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So think about it. If somebody had been guilty and they went to the city of refuge, and, and let's say it was, again, an accidental homicide. So they were investigated. It was found that they could be uh, pardoned for that accidental crime. They would have to stay in that city of refuge. What, what should be their attitude about being able to be there, being able to be safe and protected? And again, it would, it would protect them from like a mob mentality, right? They're in a city with protection. The Levites are there. Um, what should be their attitude about leaving? In First uh, Kings... There was a man named Shimei. Shimei cursed David with a bitter curse when he was running from his son Absalom. And in the days of Solomon's rule, uh, David, before his death, told Solomon to take vengeance on Shimei, to not allow him to be unpunished for what he did. So here's what Solomon did. He said to Shimei, you're allowed to stay in Jerusalem, but if at any time you leave the walls of this city, you're dead. So it's a fair condition. Shammai deserves to die for what he did to David, but as long as he stays in Jerusalem, he's safe. Well, some servants and some livestock ran from his household out of Jerusalem, and Shammai left Jerusalem to go take those things back, and he did. He brought them back and came back to Jerusalem. What did Solomon do when he found out about it? He killed Shammai. And he said, your blood is on your own head. I told you, stay in the city. You left. You're done. That's it. It's the death penalty. You know exactly what's going to happen. So again, how reverent should we be in a greater sense that we have safety in Christ and that God has ordained very, very clear boundaries for our place of refuge? How many warnings do we have in the new covenant that God will judge his people and that the vengeance that he will bring upon the world if we act like the world, live like the world, if we're disobedient to God after receiving this salvation, what is left but a terrifying expectation of judgment? Now again, the balance of these things is so important. There's such a rich mercy and grace that we have in Christ. We just have to be so incredibly careful that we don't treat that lightly and that our service to God is intensely motivated by the rescue we've received from his wrath. Chapter 36. Back to Numbers. Um, a lot of times books of the Bible end in ways that seem very strange, almost like this could have ended on a more interesting note. Uh, they're on the border of the land of Canaan. There's a lot of exciting things that are happening. Well, 
In chapter 36, some heads of the household of Manasseh, they have a question about something that was done in chapter 27. The daughters of Zelophehad had no brothers. Zelophehad had no sons. And they make a request of Moses that, the, that he would inquire of God about a situation where they're not going to receive any inheritance because they have no brothers, no close relatives. And so their inheritance will be given away to others. God responds to Moses, they're correct. And a new law was made to protect their inheritance. They would inherit it. Look at chapter 36 now, verse uh, 1 through 4. And I want you to consider how, how thoughtful these men were considering a consequence of the law that had been made. The heads of the father's household of the family of the sons of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, the families of the sons of Joseph came near, spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the heads of the father's household of the sons of Israel. And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land by lot to the sons of Israel as an inheritance. And my Lord is commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. Again, that's chapter 27. But if they marry one of the sons of the other tribes, of the sons of Israel, their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of our fathers and will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong. Thus, it will be withdrawn from our allotted inheritance. Notice this in verse 4. When what happens? When the jubilee of the sons of Israel comes, then the inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong, meaning the tribe they married into. So their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. So they have a very thoughtful problem. And I want you to think, are they thinking just about themselves and the present? Or are they thinking more about the future? You know, in verse 4, they're considering the year of Jubilee, and they've very thoughtfully worked out what could potentially happen when the Jubilee comes around, which is once every 50 years, by the way. And the idea is if they marry into another tribe and their inheritance is unclaimed, then in the Jubilee, their inheritance will be permanently, irrevocably transferred away. Thus, Manasseh potentially could slowly have its territory diminished because of these things, and they would lose territory that meant by God to belong to them perpetually. So notice verse 5. Then Moses commanded the sons of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying that the tribe of the sons of Joseph are right in their statements. And so to summarize, um, they're commanded that they are going to uh, need to marry only within their tribe, men within their tribe, so that in verse 9, no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another tribe. For the tribes of the sons of Israel shall each hold to his own inheritance. Why is this the climax of the book of Numbers? The last chapter. What are they thinking about? What are they concerned about? They are concerned for exactly the things that God is concerned about. What if Israel kept this mentality? What if they kept this thoughtfulness and concern for what God was giving them, the future, how their decisions right now are going to ripple effect into the future? Do you remember the book of Judges? Was the nation in the book of Judges properly concerned about the ripple effect of their decisions on the future? Absolutely not. So again, what impact would it have on the nation if as a whole, they maintained this kind of concern. And this is what Israel had as their perspective going to the land of Israel. And just their thoughtfulness to inquire 
I want you to think, how often did Jesus teach in a way that demanded inquiry? Throughout Numbers, there are new laws that are made because Israel cared enough to ask. Do you remember in Numbers chapter 9, the Passover? There were some people who were unclean and they approached Moses saying, hey, you know, the time of the Passover has come, but we can't participate. Is there some kind of like, is there anything God can do where on some level we can participate with Israel? And a new law was made. In the second month, there would be another second Passover that if people, you know, just by uncleanness couldn't participate, God gave them that allowance. And it's not that there's some new revelation that's going to be given to us, but I think like Jesus, when he taught in parables, Jesus deliberately taught in a way that demanded further questions, that demanded enough care. I'm so committed to learning about God's will. I just, I can't get it off my mind. Because investing in God's word and investing in his will inevitably leads to asking questions. You know, this might come in the form of asking myself questions that drive me deeper into Bible study. This might come in the form of asking other people questions. But if, if someone was following Jesus and they were never asking questions, what did that show about them? They weren't that invested or they weren't really listening to what he was saying because again, with parables, Jesus was deliberately teaching in a way where you would get nothing from his teaching if you didn't ask and seek further inquiry, right? So it's not only that they're concerned about the future, it's that they're concerned enough to ask questions. And if somebody is this invested in God's will in such a personal way and with concern for the future and my place in God's kingdom, that inevitably leads to spiritual growth and preservation. Colossians 2, verse 3 says that in Christ, in him, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, so again, we've, we've talked about this before. But with personal applications, even the most practical ones in the New Testament, ultimately there's still principles that if I hear it and do nothing with it, there's a degree of wisdom I'm never going to discover. That I'm never going to get what God is trying to give me spiritually in my inheritance in Christ because I don't have the investment to seek it out, to ask questions, to pray for wisdom, that God give it generously and without reproach. I do want you to turn to Colossians 3, 1 through 4. You know, part of the foremost commandment, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your strength, uh, your soul, and your mind. And what does it really mean to serve God with all our mind? When you turn to Colossians 3, and I think an angle of this relates um, to Numbers 36. Uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You know, the heads of the household of Manasseh, were they setting their mind on the things in the wilderness or on the things of their inheritance in the future? Were they concerned about the troubles they had faced in the past and embittered by those things or frustrated by how long it had taken? Or were they joyfully looking forward to being where God had been leading them all along and that they were right on the brink of being in that place? I think there's a sense where the heads of the household of Manasseh they were setting their mind on things above. Things not realized presently, but things that were indefinitely promised to them. 
Where do you set your mind? What consumes you? What are you most invested in? In Colossians 3, our life is hidden with Christ. Again, this is about anticipating our inheritance. You know, there's a sense where we are physically still in the wilderness. Our promised land is ahead of us. But there is a spiritual sense like Hebrews 2 or Hebrews 10, where we've already spiritually entered into our promised land, right? And so verse 3, we have died. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ is revealed, then everything we've been investing in, everything that God has promised we will be with him, will be revealed in glory. Is that where you've set your mind? Is that where you've invested your heart? I think the book of Numbers challenges us to be more thoughtful, to be more invested, and to have more concern for preserving where we are in God's kingdom, growing in the boundaries of where we are in his kingdom, and seeking to be everything that God has promised we can be if we have the faith and the zeal, the care to seek it. If you're here this morning and you're not in God's kingdom, um, just like the inhabitants of Canaan, God has promised indefinitely that there will only be wrath to those who do not obey the gospel. We can question that, we can be upset about that, but the reality cannot be changed, right? As set that it is that Christ is ruling, it is set that God will take vengeance on those who do not obey his son. And so I'd appeal to you, um, don't let time go by without obeying that gospel, being made right with God, and inheriting a permanent position within his kingdom. If there's anything else we can do for you this morning, please bring it forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.